Well, thank you, Chuck. I should have called you and asked you what you were going to sing on so I'd know what to preach about. <laughs> A lot of people have been asking me this week what I would like to be called, and I suppose you know the answer to that. You can call me anything but late to lunch or dinner. Uh, I've been called all sorts of things, and it doesn't really matter. I, I would actually prefer not to be called Reverend Roper. Um, <laughs> You know, you know the word reverend means uh, full of awe, and how would you like to be called the awful Mr. Roper? <laughs> it reminds me of the story of the church secretary that picked up the phone one day, and uh, the voice on the other end of the line said, hey, who's the head hog at the trough down there? And she said, what? And uh, he said, uh, who's the head hog at the trough? And she said, well... We hardly ever refer to our pastor in that way. And he said, well, I don't care what you call him. I wanted to send a check for $2,000 to the church, and I wondered who to send it to. And she said, oh, I think I hear the big pig coming in right now. <laughs> so I, just call me David. That's, uh, that's adequate. Uh, you know, Jesus said, there, you have one Lord, all your brothers. And uh, we're just brothers in the Lord. I really don't feel that the position of, of pastor is a position that merits any more dignity than any other uh, position in the body of Christ. We're just brothers together. So uh, if, if Paul could say, I, Paul, write, then uh, David is good enough for me. Okay? I'd like to have you turn to the 13th chapter of John. And I'd like to begin a, a series on what is traditionally called the Upper Room Discourse, that is John 13 through 17. That particular designation is not really very accurate, because though the first two chapters record uh, the portion of the discourse that took place in the Upper Room, the section beginning with chapter 15 occurred after they had left the Upper Room. That's very obvious from the text itself. If you turn to chapter 14... Uh, and look at the last verse, it says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. And uh, the disciples with Jesus arose from dinner at that point, and they left the upper room and made their way through the streets of Jerusalem, through the Kidron Valley over to uh, the Mount of Olives. And the rest of the discourse took place on that walk to the Mount of Olives and, and when they actually arrived there. But just for purposes of identification, we normally do refer to this passage as the Upper Room Discourse. Now this, as you know, contains Jesus' last words before he went to the cross. And uh, therefore they have uh, an unusual poignancy and uh, weight. Uh, someone has said last words are lasting words. The last will and testament that a person leaves or the last words that he addresses to his followers are usually very weighty, very important words. And uh, this, of course, is no exception. The, uh, the discourse itself has to be seen against the, uh, the historical setting, has to be seen against that backdrop. I wish I had time, or had had time, to find the material that I wanted you to study beforehand so that you could do a lot of this work for yourself. I had to dig it out from under some of, my, uh, some of the junk that I had in boxes, and I just wasn't able to get it to the secretaries here in time. But by next week... 
we'll have some material for you to study in advance. And had you been able to do that, you would have seen that this chapter is set in a, a context of opposition. There is a growing uh, cloud of opposition. Uh, the, the, the Jewish nation has rejected the Lord. His hour has come, as we're told in this passage. He's soon to die, and, uh, and he's been rejected. So now he turns to his own. He turns away from the Jewish nation as a whole, and he begins to minister to his own people, his own disciples, to prepare them for the task of carrying on the gospel to the next generation. This is a sort of survival course for how to live in the world. He's instructing the disciples on the message that they need to carry on in order uh, that the message that they need to carry to the next generation of believers. That's the purpose of it. And it is thus the seed plot for so much of the rest of the New Testament. Almost everything else that you find in the epistles is found in seed form in chapters 13 through 17. He takes, he takes up all of the really essential issues of Christian life and touches on them, in, uh, at least in a, in a preliminary way, and these things will be expanded and developed further in the epistles. That's why I think this is such an important section to know, because it really tells us everything we need to know about living in the world, how to live and how to cope with life and how to be the kind of men and women that God intends us to be. Okay, with that as just a, a, a brief background, let's look at chapter 13. And I'd like to read the first 17 verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. It just struck me this afternoon while I was reading that verse that that you could make that statement about uh, so many things that the Lord does. We, we simply do not understand so many, uh, so many issues in our Christian life. Uh, we don't understand always why the Lord does what he does, why we have to suffer often the way we do, why God brings certain events into our life that seem contrary to, to his purposes for us, and yet it, it will all be revealed in due time. Verse 8. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. 
Now, I want you to note two things about the passage. We're told first some things that Jesus knew, and that's given to us in verses 1 through 3. And then we're told something of what Jesus did, and that's verses 4 and following, and then the Lord's brief commentary on, on his actions. Now, first, what Jesus knew. Now, if you read these verses carefully, you'll notice that, that there are two main ideas. There are two verbs that uh, actually the same word, that occurs twice, once in verse 1 and once in verse 3. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, and then in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and then he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now, that gives us the two main ideas in this first paragraph. There were two things that Jesus knew. Now, what were they? Look at the text. Don't look at me. It's not written up here. What were the two things that Jesus knew? All right. His hour had come. His departure was imminent. He was going out of the world, but what else did he know? Did he know? Yes, that Judas would betray him. That was the that was the way that his departure would be affected. Jesus, Judas would in fact the Passover plot was already in motion at least in terms of Judas thinking. He was he was plotting the betrayal of Jesus. But now what does he say? He's going out of the world, but what other truth did he know? He's going back, that's true, back to the Father. Okay, now that's later. We're talking about just verse 1 now. Yes? What about the disciples? He loved them, but where were they? They would stay in the world. You see those two parallel phrases? He's going out of the world, but they're going to stay in the world, and that was his concern. He was leaving them, in, at least in terms of the kind of relationship that they had uh, that they'd maintained through these three and a half years, but he was leaving them in the world. So his concern now is to prepare them to live in the world. This was a, a sort of survival course for life in a hostile environment. Uh, I was stationed for a while down at Barstow, and one of the first things they did, or when it was the Army, and one of the first things they did for us is to give us a quickie course in survival training, how to survive in the desert. And uh, I didn't pay much attention because I thought it was, uh, it was never necessary, and unfortunately it never was necessary, but the purpose of all that training was to teach us how to live if we ever went out, had, were left out in the desert and uh, had to provide for ourselves there. Now, that's what Jesus is doing for the disciples. He's preparing them for life in a very hostile environment. All right, that's the first thing he knew. What else did he know? Verse 3. All right, what did he know first? Where had he come from? Okay, he came from God, and where was he going? He was going back to God, and what was true in the interim? He knew what his origin was, he knew what his destiny was, and what was true in between. He had control, but why did he have control? Exactly. Exactly. His authority came from God. That's what gave him control over his environment. That's why the Lord was always poised in every situation. You never see the Lord rattled in the New Testament. He was never uptight. He always knew precisely what to do in every situation. And he did so not because merely because he was God incarnate, but because he was also a man dependent upon God. 
he possessed the life of God. It had come from God. It was going back to God. In the meantime, he lived on the basis of the life of God. And that's the, that's the pattern for our life as well. The life that we receive from God comes from God. That's our origin. And we're going back to God. In the meantime, who controls our life? God himself. And that's what enables us to be unflappable and poised and calm and quiet and gracious in the face of all sorts of distressing circumstances. That's why the Lord could do what he did. He had to know what he knew in order to do what he did. See, he wasn't threatened by washing people's feet. Now, we would, I wouldn't do that. What would people think? I don't want to look foolish. That's, that would be very threatening to me, but it wasn't to the Lord because he didn't care what people thought. He knew who he was. He knew who he belonged to. He knew who was in control of his life, you see. And therefore, he could humble himself and he could look foolish. It didn't matter. Because he had an authority that came from above. All right, now that's what he knew. Now what did he do? Well, first it says he rose from supper and he laid aside his garments. And you'll notice that's plural. In other words, he took off his robe, which was the outer garment that they wore, and he took off his tunic, which was the little short uh, knee-length uh, garment that they wore. They actually wore three pieces of clothing, an outer robe, a long robe, and then a short tunic, and then a sort of a little breech uh, cloth apparatus. And so he took off all of his outer clothing and uh, was dressed merely in, a, in a, a breech cloth, that is, the clothing of a servant. And he begins to wash their feet. And you have to read chapter 22 of Luke to get the background for this passage. Do you know what the disciples were doing about this time? That's exactly. They were arguing about who was the greatest or who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They're squabbling and fighting about who was, who was going to sit on which side of the Lord in the kingdom and who would be the greatest. And, uh, you know, it was traditional in those days for the lowest uh, person on the the person who was farthest down the social ladder to wash everyone else's feet. That was a servant's task. Uh, and they would go to the public baths in order to cleanse themselves, and then they would walk through the streets to dinner, and their feet would get dirty as they walked through the, these dusty roads, and, and someone would have to wash their feet. Well, normally, there was a servant who was employed for that purpose, and he would wash their feet. And so all these men came in the room, and John thought, well, let Peter do it. He's always shooting his big mouth off, and uh, he uh, he ought to be the one who washes feet. And and right down the line, each man passed it on to the next person, and no one did it. No one was willing to be a servant. And so the Lord disrobes, and dressed as a servant, he begins he begins to wash his wash their feet. It says in verse five, he poured water into the basin. And began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, it's not apparent from, uh, from this translation, but, but Peter's emphasizing the fact that, it, that he ought to be the one who's washing the Lord's feet. He recognizes this. Lord, you are washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do not, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said, Never shall you wash my feet, Jesus answered him. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That is, no union, no communion with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now, what is Jesus doing? Well, there are three or four ways we can look at this passage. In the first place, this passage is a parable of the ministry which Jesus came to perform. The scriptures tell us that he who was in the form of God did not think that that, that union with God himself was a thing to be forcibly retained, but he emptied himself, and he became a man, and he took upon himself the form of a servant. And you have this picture of Jesus taking off his robes. He's standing from his place of dignity as the teacher and the leader and taking off his robes, divesting himself of his authority and washing their feet as a servant. And then having accomplished that task, he put his robes back on and he sat down, which is precisely what he did. That was his ministry. He took off the robes of his glory he became a servant. He lived among us. He served us. Having accomplished that, he put his robes on, uh, his, his, his robe of authority on again and sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's a picture of Jesus' life. That's the kind of person he was. He was a servant. And he was showing us by that action that the Christian life is a life of servanthood. It's not lordship. If you go back to chapter 22 again and look at the parallel passage, it's very clear that that's what he's saying because he says to the disciples, look, you say that a man's leadership is determined by the number of people that he rules over. That's the way the Gentiles do it. Have you ever heard people tell you how many, how many people are under them in their office? I have 15 people that work for me. You see, that's the way we measure leadership. But the Lord turns that around, and he measures greatness in terms of servanthood. How many people are you serving? That's the mark of greatness. That's really how we find life in our relationship with, with Jesus Christ. It's in serving. Jesus said, if you want to lose your life, try to keep it. Try to find people who will serve you. The most miserable people I know are people who, who are looking for others to serve them. The truly happy people in this world are people who are servants, who don't care about their rights, who are willing to forego what, uh, legitimate rights that they have and will serve others. That was the pattern of Jesus' life, and this is a parable of, of, that, uh, of that life. Now, that's the first way we can look at this passage, and there's a second way. Secondly, this is a picture of salvation. You notice he comes to Peter and he, say, he tries to wash Peter's feet. Peter pulls his feet up under his robe and he says, no way, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, if I can't wash your feet, then you don't have any part with me, no communion with me. Peter says, oh, well, wash me all over. Jesus says, you don't need it. You've already been washed, not all of you. And here he, he changes to a plural pronoun. You are clean, he says to the disciples, but not all of you, because Judas was sitting perhaps over here to his left in the place of honor. And Judas was not among those disciples who were clean. His heart had never been changed. He was never regenerated. Now what Jesus is saying is that there are really two kinds of cleansing involved here. The first is the cleansing of salvation, or what we call justification. It's what Paul calls in Titus the washing of regeneration. When we accept Christ as our personal Savior, we're washed all over. We talked about that this morning. We're purified. But 
As we walk through the world, we dirty our feet. We defile our feet by contact with the world. We sin on a day-to-day basis. And so there has to be an ongoing cleansing. And that's what is symbolized by the foot washing. So he says to Peter, Peter, you don't need to be washed all over. You're already clean. You just need to have your feet washed. So it's a very vivid and helpful picture of the ongoing process of salvation. We've been washed, yes, but we get we get defiled, we get dirty. We need to have our feet washed. We need to claim forgiveness on a day-to-day basis and be purified from specific acts of sin that, that we commit. But I want you to notice something very significant about this passage. Look at verse 14. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, given the fact that this is a picture of salvation and and cleansing of one's feet is a picture of of daily uh, cleansing, uh, asking and receiving forgiveness for sin, what would you expect Jesus to say? Well, wouldn't you expect him to say, if I, as teacher and Lord, washed your feet, you ought to wash your own feet? Wouldn't you expect that? But that's not what he says. He says, you ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, it's not merely my responsibility to cleanse my own life from defilement. That's also the responsibility of other members in the body of Christ. And if they see my feet defile, they need to come to me and wash my feet. Jesus says we're to do this. It's not an option. This is a command. You also ought to wash one another's feet. And in verse 15, I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Now, there are some churches, some wonderful brothers in Christ, Mennonites and Seventh-day Adventists and uh, United Brethren and others that actually carry out a foot washing uh, service. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But... But uh, just the service, apart from this understanding the significance of this action, is not enough because it has a far deeper significance. What the Lord is saying is that we need to help one another cleanse ourselves from defilement. If you see me sinning, then you need to come to me and in a spirit of love and, and graciousness, wash my feet. If I see you sinning, I need to come to you and help you wash your feet. See, that's what Paul is talking about in Galatians 6 when he says, if you who are spiritual, that is, those of you who are walking in the Spirit, see a brother overtaken in an offense, then you restore that brother in a spirit of of meekness, considering yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, don't be self-righteous and condemning and judgmental, but go to that brother in a spirit of love or that sister and point out to them the area of perhaps it's rebellion or, or sin, or something in their life that's defiling them, and uh, lovingly and graciously wash their feet. Now, you have to be careful of the temperature of the water. You don't want to plunge their feet in ice-cold water or scalding hot water. Uh, But we do need to wash one another's feet. Turn back to Matthew 18. Now, Jesus is saying essentially the same thing in this, in this chapter, Matthew 18, 15. 
And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. The word reprove means to show him his sin and summon him to repentance. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. All right, the first step, if you see a brother living in sin, is to go to that brother and uh, reprove him. And not harshly, not coldly, not self-righteously, but in a gracious way, speak to them about that area of disobedience in, in his or her life. Now, what if he doesn't listen? Suppose he thinks you're wrong, doesn't see it as a sin. And incidentally, we should say that, that we're talking about specific sins, not matters of conscience. We're talking about violations of, of Scripture. But what if he won't listen? Well, you take two or three other brothers or sisters, and you go to them, and, the, and in the same spirit of compassion, you appeal to that brother to, to return, to respond. You're not trying merely to strong-arm him or put a lot of pressure on him. It's, it's that the two or three combined together indicate that this is a serious thing and something that he needs to... He needs to look at carefully. In verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, this is not, again, some sweeping condemnation that we make of a brother before the church. It's that we tell other members of the body so they also can reprove him. Because he goes on to say, if he listens to the church you gained your brother. In other words, the church as a body begins to appeal to this brother to come back into fellowship with, with his Lord. And then Jesus says, if you won't listen to repeated appeals on the part of the church, let him be to you as a tax gatherer and a sinner. Now think for a minute. How did Jesus view tax collectors and sinners? He loved them, but he considered them outside the fold. You see, his point is not that we reject these people, that we just that we turn a cold shoulder on them and, and have nothing to do with them. His point is that if a brother can withstand this kind of loving treatment, he probably is not a brother. He's a non-Christian. And therefore, let's treat him the way we treat non-Christians. Love them, be gracious to them, be their friends, but don't treat them as a Christian. Because... It's very difficult to conceive of any brother in Christ resisting this kind of treatment for very long. Now, you see, we don't do this, do we? We don't wash one another's feet. We criticize one another, and very often we do it under the guise of prayer. Let's pray about Sally so-and-so and the terrible thing she's doing. Or we talk behind their back in other less gracious ways. Or we give them the cold shoulder or we turn self-righteous, but we, but we don't wash their feet. What a redemptive, constructive thing this is when you have a body of people who care enough about each other that they're willing to venture themselves in this way. Now, this is not uh, a license to be a snoopervisor, to go around the church and set everybody right. That's not the point. And there are some people who think it's their God-given call to straighten out every other person's life. But if you have a, a friend, someone who's very close to you, a good brother that you, or sister that you really love and care for, and you see them stumbling and failing in their walk with the Lord, the Lord says you need to go to that brother and appeal to them in love to come back. Sometimes that's all it takes. And Jesus says if you do that, you've gained your brother. Well, what a great thing to have gained a brother who otherwise would uh, perhaps lose out on a great deal of what God has in store for them. All right. Well, let's pray, shall we?
Father, we, we're very grateful that you've given us the opportunity to, uh, to be involved in, in the work that you're doing in people's lives and to do so in a, in a very real and tangible way, to be able to take the words of life and make them available to people and use them as an instrument to cleanse and to purify and restore a life. And we would like, as a, as a body of believers, to be involved with, with one another in this way, caring for one another and, and concerned about where another person is in his relationship with Christ and running along, alongside in a supportive way. And uh, we want that kind of love for one another, and we want that sort of environment here. And so we ask that you teach us how to, to do these things and to do them in, in loving and gracious ways with the right uh, intentions, the right desires. And thank you that you're the one who empowers us to do this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.